Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Eight years ago, Tom and I sat around a table and had a big conversation about who would hike first, the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve, and who would hike more, the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve. In the end, the Bank of England waited, waited, and did very little at all. In fact, it was the Federal Reserve that was almost flying solo for the big developed market central banks. It will be different this time. Dara Mayer, the head of America's research and FX strategy at HSBC Securities, joins us right now. Dara, how difficult and different will this one be compared to what we saw last time? around. It's, it's a really tricky time for central banks. I mean, Tom used the word conundrum in the terms of, of market behavior, but for central banks, this is it. I mean, you've got a, an inflation problem, so do you respond to that? You've got a real income squeeze, um, so do you take greater account of that? This is really tricky. I mean, look, as a house, we're, we think the Fed errs on the side of a, a 50 basis point move in March, whereas for the Bank of England, um, we think they're going to just stick with the 25 pace that they delivered last time around. Clearly, the FX takeaway that is it should be lower cable, um, but they are pretty, well, certainly the Fed call still very finely balanced in our opinion. Dara, let's go to the fan distribution that's personified by jump conditions. We have a 3.4 standard deviation move in United Kingdom inflation. Are we going to start to see currency markets, currency pairs in a jump condition where there's big figure opportunity? Uh, I, I, honestly, I think the FX market is struggling to get its head around this one because it, it's facing that same conundrum that policymakers are facing. What will be the spin? And, you know, as, as John pointed out, in, in the UK, it's a, there's going to be a very transparent income squeeze coming up with the energy price hikes that you know, that, that are legislated for. We know they're coming, but that's going to have a huge impact on the consumer consumer sentiment. That said, yesterday, we had wages data, PAYE data, uh, which showed wages growth, at least for that sector, um, growing quicker. Uh, than inflation. So positive real income growth. That's You're not seeing that in the US, you're not seeing that in the Eurozone. So I think that still allows the Bank of England to tighten. I just don't see that. The five people who voted for 25 basis points last time out, why is one of them going to suddenly vote for 50? I just don't see it, despite that big inflation upside. The market seems to agree with some of your concerns about the economy. If you look at the uh, two tens yield curve in the United Kingdom, it's only a few basis points away from inversion. And George Cerevelis was talking about this concern with the market even pricing in rate cuts by the Bank of England next year. Uh, what do you think is sort of the, uh, the consequence for the pound if there is that type of backdrop? Look, it, it is very peculiar, isn't it? Um, I, I look at the, the forward OIS market, so that has you know, all the tightening coming in the next 12 months um, and, and then has 100 basis points lower for five years out. So in other words, the market is saying, hey, yeah, we think you're going to tighten, but we think it's a mistake, um, or, or at least it won't stick. Um, and, and that reflects what we're seeing in, in inflation, as you say, in terms of the economy. There's a squeeze in consumers, but there's also a squeeze on businesses. Um, so it's all a, a pretty toxic mix, I would say, for sterling. And, and thankfully, none of us have even mentioned Brexit. So that's great. We can get to a lower sterling without I'm it. so pleased we don't talk about that anymore, Dara. That's the framework for thinking about the central banks, the respective economies, the UK, Europe, the United States. What's the conviction trade in foreign exchange for you? 
Look, I do like lower sterling. Um, I think even this morning we were recommending buying buying euro sterling um, as one way to play that. I think lower cable as well. They're, they're for me, the, the more straightforward trades. You've got 75 basis points of tightening priced into the Bank of England over the next two meetings. In other words, you have to deliver 50 at one of them. I just don't see that. I think we get a 25 and a 25. So that, that's one. Um, and generally, uh, conviction still there in terms of our modest dollar strengthening. It, it's not glamorous. It'll be a, a modest trend, but I think it'll be pretty relentless. So a uh, dollar bull. Dara Mayer, thank you, sir, of HSB Securities. Looking for a little bit of weakness through sterling. Dara, as always, thank you very much. Let's get to Mandy Zhu, Tom, the Chief Equity Derivative Strategist at Credit Suisse. Mandy, should I be pricing in rate hikes or the cuts that might be in our future? Both. So what's interesting is even as traders are pricing in more aggressive rate hikes for this year, currently just under seven total hikes being priced for the year. Um, they're also pricing in rate cuts further out. So starting in 2024, the curve is actually inverted with about 70% probability being priced in currently that the Fed will have to cut rates very soon. Right. And that what that tells you is that there's a real risk that the Fed is about to embark uh, on a policy mistake, meaning over tightening right. now and killing off economic <clears throat> growth and having to cut rates very, very quickly soon after. Mandy, there are four cross moments here that pros like you follow. And one of them is this odd thing called skew. Sku. We don't do skew. We don't do derivative math on Wednesdays. But what we can say, <laughs> Mandy, is it has to do with the fear that's out there. And when you are feared, folks, in global Wall Street, you hedge. What is the demand now, the appetite to hedge? So interestingly, to start the year, um, we haven't actually seen much um, a, a, a significant increase in demand for hedges up until, right. I would say, over the past week. Um, and that's interesting because, you know, obviously we had a 10% pullback in the S&P in January, and actually volatility really underperformed on that sell-off because of this lack of hedges. Um, and I would say part of that reason is because, you know, if you think of the catalyst driving that correction, it was, you know, fear of higher rates. And that's really a well-anticipated um you know, a catalyst is not really an un unknown or an uncertain, you know, an unexpected risk. Um, what we're seeing over the past couple of days is more demand for hedges on the back of the Russia-Ukraine news and also on the back of, um, you know, a speculation that the Fed may be hiking intermeeting. I think that has driven a lot more hedging activity in recent days. What is the leverage exposure wrapped around the hedges and, frankly, the entire market? I mean, frankly, folks, Credit Suisse literally invented the monitoring of, of leverage, I would suggest. What is the depth of leverage out there? So I think for a lot of institutional investors, they have uh, deleveraged quite a bit, um, especially January was very painful for a lot of hedge funds. Um, and this is, you know, I would say, the most pronounced at the sector level for tech. Um, in terms of kind of the protection buying that we're seeing, um, you know, they're not crash protection buying. Typically, you know, the protection buying that we are seeing is, is uh, positioning for a more modest pullback from here. So I would say, you know, given what happened in January, given the deleveraging that we have already seen, you know, the, 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 the protection protection buying that we're, we're seeing right now, um, it, it's more modest. It's not as, you know, bearish um, as, as, you know, as some might think. 
Mandy, a lot of people will think of me as the person who comes up with a negative scenario no matter what happens. But there is that kind of baked into the hedges, too. There are the people who are hedging for a Fed policy error on both sides, not only moving too fast, but not moving quickly enough at a time when inflation itself is crimping demand, or there is the fear of that. Perhaps we'll see some of that uh, in the retail sales at 8.30. What's your view on why people are hedging and how you can determine this from the type of hedge? Sure. Um, so I would say, you know, on, on the on the risk of the Fed being behind the curve, um, I would say that's a risk that is, I think, overblown because, yes, we're seeing very high inflation right now. But the important thing to emphasize is that long term inflation expectations, whether or not you're looking at, you know, market based expectations, looking, for example, at the five year, five year forward break even or you're looking at consumer surveys, they remain remarkably well anchored. And as long as that you know remains the case, I do think the Fed has more breathing room. Um, but in terms of, you know, what is what people are hedging. I would say looking at, you know, hedges in tech has been very popular. And then the second one that has been more popular right now is um, looking at cross-asset hedges, given you know, some of the moves in equities that we have seen, people looking across other asset classes, for example, fixed income ETFs, um, precious metals like gold, for example, that's been another popular one. Mandy, have you seen a lot of investors decide to shift around their allocations with hedges, with derivatives, rather than actually selling some of those holdings? And I think about tech stocks. For a long time, people were worried about getting rid of them for fear of not being able to buy them back at an appropriate price later. Yeah, I don't think that fear is that as dominant this time um, regarding tech. Uh, but in terms of kind of um, how people are hedging and, and what they're doing, um, particularly, I would say, on the risk of inflation, it's very notable that um, what we've seen is in high inflation regimes, um, the correlation between equities and bonds break down, right? That's an empirical fact. And that's obviously, you know, not good if you're a multi-asset portfolio, you know, say a 60-40 uh, traditional fixed income equity portfolio because, you know, your bonds are no longer diversifying your equity risk. Um, so what we have seen from a lot of institutional investors is a look at more equity specific hedges, so less reliance on fixed income to be your hedge. Um, and the second thing is looking at commodities, right? Adding a commodities allocation, because obviously commodities are a big driver of the current inflation that we're seeing and historically always been that case. So looking at either adding um, allocation to the underlying commodity or increasing upside exposure to some of the commodity sensitive sectors, for example, energy. Mandy Zhu, great to catch up. Thank you. Of Credit Suisse, thank you very much. Right now to interpret and drive forward, Simona Makata joins us, Chief Economist, State Street Global Advisors in Boston. Simona, thrilled to have you uh, with us today. And my arch question out of the Bullard-McKee talk I just had is, does this kind of data assist you in deciding when inflation breaks? If we're at a high level of inflation, the game is the guesstimate of when it starts to roll over. Does retail sales today help with that? I don't think so. I think uh, what I see in the data is a lot of month-to-month -month volatility. And, you know, the January numbers were very strong, but put those against December, average the two, and you get something much milder. I think that's how you gauge what the trend of this economy is. I don't think the retail sales data in specifically help you with the inflation question. Personally, 
Um, I'm, I, I'm of a view that around mid-year is when we are going to see meaningful signs of inflation deceleration. It's, it seems as though we are pushing on this string and, you know, as time goes by and nothing becomes apparent in the data, we lose hope. But it's possible that when the change occurs, it occurs quite suddenly. And, you know, if you go from like nothing's here to there is plenty of evidence of inflation decelerating. But what is, it's not today's data that helps that. What is the linkage between an inflation and then on to a growth <laughs> estimate? Well, um, it's very simple. It's a basic econ concept. The higher the price, the fewer the quantity sold. So this is, you know, high inflation. Think of it as a as a demand headwind. Um, of course, you can offset it if you have persistent income flow to absorb that inflation, you know, um, wealth destruction or income destruction, purchasing power destruction. But in and of itself, high inflation will lead to lower growth. Are we seeing, though, that that's not coming to fore the way that a lot of people are expecting? I mean, we were talking about how you're seeing sentiment deteriorate, but it doesn't seem to be uh, dramatically crimping uh, purchases. At what point does that start to give you a sense that maybe that narrative isn't working this time around? The narrative works. The timing doesn't work precisely. And the reason it does not work precisely is that you have a consumer that in the aggregate still sits on a huge amount of accumulated savings. So you don't need to have a demand response immediately. What you can do, you can draw down those accumulated savings and still finance consumption in the interim. But if that's that's a that works for a while, eventually um, there will be a demand response. It may not be apparent until the second half of the year. And let's not forget, even in today's data, you had a very strong help there from auto vehicles. There's still a lot of pent up demand in parts of you know, of the spectrum, and that will still help. Uh, but this is the tricky part, you know, trying to dissect, you know, what is the real message here? I think you cannot take any single data point, you know, put too much weight on any single data point and try to take a view that takes you over the course of the year, not just for the next month or two. What about the fact that we haven't necessarily seen inflation decelerate to the degree or even start mm -hmm. to give signs of peaking the way that people had previously expected? How high uh, does that mean that inflation could go? How much are you revising your estimates? estimates about the trajectory of this particular cycle? Yeah, it's been a tough journey, I have to say. I think the inflation revisions are still <laughs> upwards um, as, uh, as of this point in time. I think what you are starting to see is leading indicators of a turn in inflation, things like um, you know, perhaps uh, things having to do with shipping costs, things having to do with expectations of inventory building, things having to do with expectations of wage increases. Just to give you an example, in the small business survey, for instance, you had current compensation, so current wage increases making a new record, but compensation plans decelerating. So this is all you see at the moment. So it's it's not even uh, in the inflation data per se. It's in the leading indicators of inflation that you are starting to see some some shift. Got to leave it there, Simona. Thank you. Simona Mokata there of State Street Global Advisors. Thank you very much. Here in America, do you think Ford Motor Company and General Motors, which have completely retooled and are retooling their factories, to build electric, you think they're suddenly going to say, no, electric's not the future? Electric is the future for automobiles all around the world.
Now John Kerry, the former Secretary of State, a most interesting gentleman, and of course, the U.S. Special Envoy for Climate. I did a panel. Thank you, Bank of America. Mr. Moynihan was Secretary Kerry in Davos on climate, and I was thunderstruck at how statistically well-informed the senator was. I still, I'm sorry, folks, it's Massachusetts. I still call him the senator. How the senator was informed legitimately on climate, whatever your beliefs in the topic. Of course, peer-to-peer conversations with David Rubenstein, it'll be most interesting as well. I was thunderstruck how this guy did not mail it in on climate. Is that what you observed? He knows this stuff cold. This is the job he wanted. Most people, when they finish being Secretary of State, never want to go back into government because any position will be less significant than the one they had. He's so interested in this subject. He came back, in effect, is a, a subordinate to, to the Secretary of State. He's not subordinate, but he's not as significant as the Secretary of State, who used to be his deputy. Uh, Tony Blinken used to be the deputy to John Kerry. Now, Tony Blinken's Secretary of State and John Kerry is in the State Department, but not as significant a position as he once had. But he wanted to do this because he really cares about climate change. David, because of news flow, we have other topics. But one more question this morning on John Kerry. He's big time frustrated over where we are right now. Headlines today. I think water uh, water uh, lease is going to rise flight. two or three feet. Baltimore's Camden Yards is going to be flooded. I mean, climate change is going the wrong way right now for John Kerry. We've had a lot of problems with climate change. And I think people recognize, I think he said in this interview, that it's here, it's something we have to do something about. But the truth is, it's nothing we can do overnight that's going to change the situation. It's going to take years. That's why when we talk about standards, we're talking about things we can do by the year 2050. There's a goal by many people to be net zero in terms of emissions by 2050, but that's going to take some time to get there. Lisa, the Secretary, Secretary Blinken, speaking uh, with Joe over at MSNBC, no evidence of a Russia pullback. Yeah, and I know that uh, John Kerry did want to talk about the climate change issues. Uh, He was, though, a former Secretary of State, and Tony Blinken was his disciple, which leads us to really understand perhaps some of the framework as to how they have grappled with the situation. David, to the degree that we've gotten some rhetoric out of Tony Blinken really giving a threat that if this region of Ukraine gets recognized as independent by Russia, that's a game changer and necessitates a response. How do you think about that in terms of gaming out the potential for an escalation or de-escalation? I think this is reminiscent of what George Herbert Walker Bush did in the Kuwait War. He got a coalition together, put together very effectively by Jim Baker, his Secretary of State. And in the end, the Allies were so strong that there was no chance really for Saddam Hussein to prevail in Kuwait. Right now, the Allies are so united uh, that I don't think there's any chance that that uh, Putin can move forward and not realize there's going to be a big, big problem for him. So at this point, my view is he's looking for a way out, a graceful way out. And diplomacy now should focus on two things. How can we give him a graceful way out? And how can we not uh, brag about what happened? We want to do what George Herbert Walker Bush did after the Berlin Wall fell. He didn't go over and trumpet what he'd done. Right, right. He he was very graceful. He didn't want to do the kind of things that people wanted to do because he gave— a face-saving way out for Gorbachev. That's what you need to do here with Putin. David Rubenstein, my father told me they hid the newspapers from me during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Dean Rusk and the team there, off of the crisis, had to allow Khrushchev to save face. What did we learn then that we can apply now? Well, we did give him a way out because we actually gave him something. We gave him missiles in Turkey. We said we'd pull them out, and we didn't really need those missiles anyway, so it was a face-saving way for him. Also, we didn't... uh, 
brag about it in, in the way that uh, I think we could we we have to prevail. We have to do it in the future as well. We shouldn't be saying to people, "We just beat Putin. We beat him. We uh, trumpeted." We don't want to do that. What you really want to do is to say, "Look, we have an agreement now. It's good, and we're every both sides won." That's what he needs to really do as president of the United States, and I think that's what Joe Biden is doing. From an executive perspective, David, and as the co-founder of Carlisle, I wonder what your experience has been with these rising geopolitical tensions in terms of how to prepare for possible sanctions, how to prepare for a shift in the regulatory landscape. Well, no one can really prepare completely for these kind of things because sometimes the uh, regulatory landscape changes so quickly. Uh, in the private equity world, you tend to be a longer-term investor. But there's no doubt that uh, firms like ours do have shorter-term investments, and we have publicly traded securities as well. There's no perfect way to do it. But in any time you do uh, a long-term investment or a short-term investment, you now increasingly look at geopolitical risks in the United States as well as abroad. And, and this particular risk is one that people are taking uh, – a strong look at. Now, we not recognize that it's likely that energy prices would go up if Putin were to invade, and the markets have reflected that. But energy prices should come down if, in fact, we can come up with a peaceful resolution of this. The news flow today has been uh, dramatic, and I do want to bring you this headline uh, that the Wall Street Journal is report reporting that the Justice Department is pursuing a wide-ranging probe of short sellers, including uh, with Carson Block, a prominent short seller who received a subpoena, uh, had an FBI search warrant. From your perspective, David, with your legal prowess, what's your view on some of the regulatory crackdown that we're seeing right now from this administration? I wouldn't use the word crackdown. I would say uh, the chairman of the SEC, Gary Gensler, thinks there should be more disclosure of uh, hedge fund fees and, and private equity fees. And, and no doubt there'll be comments about that and come, something will, will move forward. But I, I think it's important that everybody who invests in these kind of funds do have uh, does have very good information and fees should be disclosed. And I don't think anybody's against that. The devil is in the details, but I think it can be worked out to everybody's satisfaction. Let me bring it back to your conversation with uh, Secretary Kerry. Here's a guy who's devoted years and years of public service. He, now he's dealing with something that appears from all intents intractable as well. What's the Kerry agenda to get something done in the coming quarters and years? Well, John Kerry is somebody who's 78 years old. He's not somebody who is at the beginning of his career. Why at this age does he want to go back and work on this issue? It's because he really seriously cares about it and thinks he can make a difference. Everybody wants to have a legacy when they're in public policy, and he thinks his legacy will probably be something related to climate change if he can get some agreements here that more than we've already had. I'm running out of time, but what can you, with all of your advantages in your firm Carlisle do to assist in water or the broader scope and scale of drought management. Do you have meetings on that at Carlisle? We have a large ESG program, which means uh, environmental, social, and governance. And so all of the companies we look at, as do other companies in our industry, we care very much about this. And 30 years ago in our business, we didn't care about ESG very much. Now everybody cares about that. And so when we buy a company, we're very certain to make uh, clear we want to care about the environmental <clears throat> policies of that company going forward. We try to do things that will make the environmental practices much better than they were mm -hmm. before. It's going to be interesting. David Rubenstein, thank you so much. Of course, peer-to-peer -peer conversations with John Kerry. Look for that peer-to-peer -peer conversations. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations 
and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.